Welcome to the Portrait Detective podcast, where we dive into the collections of the State Library of New South Wales to discover iconic images from Sydney's past. Hi everyone, I'm Cassie Gilmartin, editor of portraitdetective.com.au. I'm here with Margot Riley, curator at the State Library of New South Wales, co-founder of Portrait Detective and an expert in fashion history and photography. We're here discussing some of our favourite images from the collections at the State Library of New South Wales, based on Margot's research for portraitdetective.com.au. Hi Margot, how's your week been? Well, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride this week, Has but it? <laughs> uh, you know that's the the nature of the life of a curator at the State Library, and I've just been putting the finishing touches to an exhibition looking at 70s gay rights activism in New South Wales. Oh, wow. (laughs) From very broad sides of the spectrum. (laughs) Yes, yes. And quite a different hat today. We're discussing an iconic portrait of a young Australian colonial woman from 1837. Indeed. Uh, So let's dive straight in. So today in our podcast, we're meeting a woman by the name of Mary Ellen Betts, who lived in New South Wales in the 1830s. The image we're looking at is thought to be a self-portrait of Mary Ellen, painted in 1837. And for everyone listening, you can see the image we're discussing by tapping the link on your phone at the bottom of the podcast homepage or visiting portraitdetective.com.au forward slash podcast. Margot, when we were chatting about what images to include in this podcast series, we both gravitated to this potential self-portrait by Mary Ellen, a selfie, if you will. And she's looking very poised and studious, isn't she? Why is this image iconic to you? Well, I think for uh, anybody who's familiar with the iconography, I suppose, of the early um, 19th century, that late Georgian, early Victorian era, you know, captured in documentaries and and there was this real uh, perception of the epitome of um, womanhood, what women should be aspiring to. Women, of course, at this stage mostly didn't work if they they would marry and they would create a home for their families. Mm -hmm. So there was this ideal of domesticity, the angel in the household, and and the image or the illusion or um, the aspiring to uh, refinement and accomplishment, feminine accomplishment. Mm. I think another, again, a term that we're probably familiar with if you've read any Austen. Yes. You know, they're always <laughs> listing the accomplishments yes. and, you know, what are the characteristics of the accomplished yes. woman? She was very accomplished. That was Indeed. a phrase you that you read. Endlessly. <laughs> so I think that was really um, an ambition for women of a certain class uh, in Europe and, and also in colonial Australia. Uh, and also this particular image is such a beautiful depiction in lovely colour, which is Mm. so important to um, bring across all of those elements of taste and refinement. Um, And and it also documents an interesting period in women's fashion of the 1830s. There was a transition from one style to another style, and that's perfectly captured in this image of Mm. Mary Ellen Betts. Mm. And she's, she's sitting at her desk. It's a very domestic scene. And we know Mary Ellen was the third daughter 
daughter and sixth child of Reverend Samuel Marsden and his wife Elizabeth. And Marsden, um, who worked as a magistrate for some years in Parramatta, is a name that would be familiar to a lot of listeners who have researched ancestors in colonial Sydney. And Mary Ellen married John Betts in 1830 and the couple settled near Orange. And she went on to have 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. So that kept her very busy as a wife and mother. But Margot, what do we know about Mary Ellen as an artist? And what do we know about this uh, potential self-portrait in particular? Well, it is um, a unique physical document of this type of aspirational and artistic leisure pursuits that was really enjoyed by um, members of the elite in colonial society. Plus, it offers a rare occupational portrait of a woman. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is it shows her as an artist in the practice, in the business of creating an artwork. Mm. So even though she is an amateur artist, she has chosen to record, we believe, herself um, in the practice of being an mm. artist. So she's, you know, that's her aspiration it's to be fant- seen that way. It's a fantastic um, window into into her and what she was doing mm. at the time. And it's in situ, isn't yeah. it? It's- well, we think so. You know, again, there's so much um, that one has to, um, we don't know for sure. It isn't signed, as we say. Mm-hmm. But making self-portraits was definitely part of the drill of any artist's practice uh, through the 19th century and even mm-hmm. today because, you know, you have that subject to hand. Mm. People draw their cats or their dogs and they can look in a mirror and they can record themselves. And that's exactly what I think has happened here. Um, And it is naive, quite naive in its rendering and Mm. in the portrayal, which indicates there's a lack of formal life drawing training Mm -hmm. for Mary Ellen. And that's also quite appropriate for an amateur at this time, especially a woman, because a woman would not be, you know, you Mm. wouldn't find a woman being able to um, sit in on a Mm. life drawing class. It would be way too shocking. There'd be no training for her. Well, it just wouldn't be appropriate. She Mm. couldn't go to art school and she would do still life and Mm. botanical art. That was totally appropriate. But to be drawing the body, um, even if she went to drawing classes in Sydney, it's unlikely that she would have studied portraiture. It was Mm. really just not uh, considered the bag. It was really more artistic, decorative art that they would be uh, studying. Yes, it wasn't until later in the 19th century that you begin to get the emergence of professional artists, professional women artists, Mm -hmm. and those who actually go and have formal training, you know, they break the mould by Mm -hmm. actually going and and studying life drawing, which is, as I say, Mm -hmm. considered quite shocking um, as the century goes by. Yes. But... Added to to that, the story of Mary Ellen is the fact that her elder sister, um, who had been born when the Marsdens were en route to Australia, so Mm -hmm. had been here quite early in the days of the colony, when there wouldn't have been um, appropriate education for a girl of this class. So she was actually sent back to England at the age of six to her grandmother and her aunt, who supervised her education, the appropriate um, education for you know, a minister's daughter. She returned to the Parramatta Parsonage in 1812 when Anne was 18, and by this time Mary was about six years old. So you can imagine in the running of that household that um, 
and recently returned, would have probably taken on the education of mm. the younger children, certainly the girls, mm-hmm. and she would have shared that English education and mm. the, the accomplishments that she had learned there with her grandmother and her aunt with her sisters. And I'm pretty sure that is probably how um, Mary Ellen would have gained her uh, artistic training. And we know for a fact that Anne was an amateur artist. There, are, There's documentation of her writing, t- telling people about uh, that she's painted views mm. and sending some of these examples back to England. They survive in collections in England. So we do have that proven sort of background. Uh, but mostly these types of images made by um, lady painters of the time would have been made for sharing with family and friends. In this case, this image uh, shows off the refined atmosphere of the Betts home. We're presuming it's uh, the Betts home. It could be that she's visiting. She could have been visiting somewhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's why she has the uh, leisure time to actually sit and do a portrait. Mm -hmm. We don't really know for sure. But at uh, in this period, so the uh, 1834 to 1840, the Betts were living at Vale Head House, which was at Molong near Orange. So the whole image that you see in front of you actually reflects Mary Ellen's social position in the colony. Uh, You know, flower painting was a suitable, um, refined pastime for an educated woman of her class. And the way it's been, she's depicted herself or someone has depicted her as if she's just come in from the garden having picked her specimen and she is going to studiously transfer this beautiful bloom through onto the page through very skillful watercolour rendering. So a very suitable, delicate and ladylike task. <laughs> very ladylike. All about the ladylike. <laughs> you mentioned before that it's not signed. And I mean, women didn't usually sign their work then as as male painters did. I mean, heaven forbid, right, that you, you signed your own work as a woman. Well, certainly amateur artists um, and mostly women artists tended to work in art workshops and they might do part of a process, but not always did they, were they in charge of um, an entire artwork. Often they didn't work in oils. It wasn't considered, again, feminine. Mm. Women worked in watercolour rather than oil. And there are obviously variations on this, women who did earn their livings, but as an amateur, um, they they would have been images would have been created for private consumption and amusement. Often they're made for gifts um, or for sharing in the drawing room. So mm-hmm. when you you know it's an, it's, it was a decorative pastime. Mm. You could be found in a in a pleasing attitude, yes. stumbled across as you were you know very painting decoratively painting scene. away with the light Doing falling your... just so. <laughs> you know you can imagine it all. It is like something out of an Austen novel. <laughs> And often these artworks were destined for commonplace books or scrapbooks, um, which again would have been left out in the drawing room. And when guests came to visit, you they would you know page through the scrapbooks. And often guests would actually make their own contributions if they were staying over the weekend. They would might might write a poem or they they they're really like the the nineteenth century equivalent of the autograph book mm. that comes later on. Um, and the library has several of these in its collections, and mostly these are compiled by leading con- colonial families of this era. 
But amongst the next genera- generation of, of women artists, uh, we find people like the Scott sisters, um, Harriet and Helena Scott, who were acknowledged as semi-professional natural history artists. And they record, uh, I think, I can't remember which, whether it was Harriet or Helena, but in a letter, she writes to say how privileged she feels to be allowed by their father to sign their work when it was published alongside <laughs> his text Gosh. in in an official scientific um, publication. Mm. But then as time went by, the family fell into reduced uh, financial circumstances and the same women were mortified some years later when they were forced to earn their living through their artwork. Mm. So it's that difference between, um, you know, amateur and... For pleasure. For pleasure Mm. and then having to put your name out there and actually earn a living. Mm. Um, But, you know, people who are listening to the podcast might know of the work of the Scott sisters because there has been, over the years, there have been several major exhibitions of their work particularly one that was staged at the Australian Museum in uh, 2017. And there's a fantastic online um, presence for the Scott Sisters on the Australian Museum website. Mm, Well worth a a look. Their work is beautiful. It really is remarkable. Mm. And are there any other portraits of Mary Ellen in existence to compare the likeness of this this selfie? Yes, there are, which again is pretty rare. It's, they're two very poor, unfortunately, photographic copies of a later daguerreotype portrait. Uh, one copy is in the State Library of New South Wales and the other is at the National Library in Canberra. But while I was doing the preparation for this chat, I, I came across this fantastic reference in the Windsor and Richmond Gazette of the 20th of July of 1928, which was doing this series of articles about the fabulous daughters of Samuel Marsden and it re- references a, the, a coloured daguerreotype and the description says Miss Mary Marsden the third daughter of Reverend Samuel Marsden and his wife Elizabeth was undoubtedly the beauty of the family all the Marsden people agreed and say so and judging by a splendid hand-painted daguerreotype portrait it appears to be a correct opinion of a type of a beautiful currency lass that is an Australian woman <laughs> couldn't get better than that that's fantastic I love the phrase currency lass. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Not sterling because that was English. English money was sterling and the currency that was issued in the colony meant that you were born and raised in the colony. So that's where that phrase comes yes, yes. from. Yes, yes. If you were Fantastic. English, you were considered to be sterling. Um, and tell us more about Mary Ellen's appearance in this in this portrait. What does this tell us about life in the 1830s? Well, I think as you know, we've sort of made clear already, the image speaks to the lifestyle of a successful member of the landed classes in New South Wales. Mrs Best wears a tastefully styled and fully accessorised ensemble of fashionable garments, including, I love, you know, her freshly laundered and starched, spotlessly white pelerine collar, that sort of triangular cape Um, shaped collar. It's possibly even hand embroidered by the lady herself, another of those Mm. fine accomplishments Mm -hmm. that an educated woman should have, uh, especially in her class. And we do know that the Mars and women are likely to have been skilled needlewomen. 
There are a, a group of garments provenance to the family held at Sydney's Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, and these indicate that the Marsdens were accustomed to making over outmoded dresses to reflect later fashions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we can see here in this image as well. How fabulous to still have some of those dresses. Indeed. In and I think, and the provenance again, because mm. it means we can link different parts of the story together and make educated guesses, because that's what a lot of what I do is. It's about educated guesswork. Mm. Um, so one of the characteristics of um, fashion in the 1830s, early 1830s, were these enormous gigot or leg of mutton or even elephant or what was the other word? There was another word for, I think, imbecile, imbecile sleeves. <laughs> How <laughs> stupid were they? They were so stupid they were. Imbecile <laughs> they were sleeves. Imbecile sleeves. And, and they had, you know, like supports inside them, little puffs of swan's down and, you know, to keep Gosh. the sleeve head really enormously puffy. And, and the idea like that of, of course, heat as well. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I suppose they could pluck the chickens to stuff the, the oh. thingies. I don't know. But the idea, of course, was if you had wide shoulders, you would make your waist look really tiny. So right. it was a visual illusion. Mm-hmm. And it was this sort of almost an hourglass um, silhouette. You had the triangle at the top going to the waist and then another triangle going out to the skirt at the hem. But in the middle of the 1830s, the, um, the silhouette changed and it became more gothic it was um and it was this sort of more of a drooping singular triangle mm. so the idea was that the shoulders became narrower and all the fullness moved down the sleeve so you get this sort of it's just a more of a um, mm. it's hard to sort of describe but it was known as a gothic and mm. a romantic kind of a style softer than the you know the sort of great big puffy sleeves and so the way that women accommodated this change, because again, like fashion today, they, they, it happened quite rapidly. All of a sudden the sleeve collapsed and you get the fashion plates arriving and all of a sudden, you know, big sleeves are out and nothing can date your frock was the big sleeves. So if you were a skilled needlewoman, you could just take the sleeves out and you had all Changing. this extra fabric mm. and what they did was they would just... Um, gather the, the head of the, of the shoulder and put that back into the seam and move all of the fullness down the length of the arm. And that's what we're seeing in this image. Right. So the, the, the sleeve heads are hidden underneath the cape collar, giving you that triangle shape. And then the fullness, she's created these gorgeous little pagoda-shaped puffs on either side of the elbow and then this sort of soft kind of drooply wrinkly kind of softness down to the wrist and that all you know highly um, useful and um, really clever Mm. restyling of the gown and I think The fabric was always one of the most expensive things about dresses in this area. They took a lot of material. Material was hard to get. Um, This, I think, it's like a gauze, a soft, gauzy fabric, this one. It's probably Chinese. And Mm -hmm. the green is definitely a very popular and fashionable uh, colour for Mm -hmm. the era. So um, I think she's made a really good use of the remodelling Mm -hmm. because those pagoda shapes actually reflect the colour as well. And so the whole thing remains very fashionable. And another detail is the um, shirred bodice. Uh, that actually gave you lots of potential to expand. So if she was having children and her, you know, she might have had to change the shape of her dress just to accommodate mm-hmm. uh, her changing physical shape, mm-hmm. um, the, this could be done with the just removing some of the cords mm-hmm. out of that shirred bodice. You could actually change um, the fullness of, of the bodice. 
Um, and then the other element about this um, image that I think is really interesting, uh, she's not wearing an indoor cap. Mm. Now, we, married women at this time usually wore a little white cap mm. when they were inside. And then, of course, the moment you've stepped outside, you'd put your bonnet on over the top. And here we see she has long ribbons, ha- reddish mm, pink ribbons sort of ribbons. tying down, which to me uh, suggests that she's dropped her bonnet behind her back. She's just come inside from the garden, having picked up, picked her specimen and, you know, desperate to get it documented before it wilts. But then, you know, why doesn't she have an indoor bonnet? Perhaps she wants to show off her mm. very carefully styled hair. <laughs> you yes. know, if it is a private image for herself, for her to record her appearance and probably the most flatteringly and successful way she wants to, she's discarded or taken off, left off mm. her indoor bonnet. It's mm. so. a fantastic insight into how she how she thought of herself. I guess those bonnets, those indoor bonnets, weren't terribly flattering, were they? Well, I think it, it was a real symbol between a married woman and a mate, mm. a maid. You know, mm. it was, you know, whenever you see a portrait and a woman is wearing, it's sort of almost an indication that she's a married woman or a ma- more mature, older woman. So whether or not as a young, still a young woman, a relatively young woman, mm. um, she preferred to, to, put, to represent herself yeah. as her younger self or yeah. at her prime. I, again, it's a lot of educated guesswork here. Yes, but, <laughs> but uh, fantastic insights. And you mentioned the Scott sisters earlier who were working, they were a generation later than Mary Ellen Betts, weren't they? Yes. And were there any other female artists who were Betts contemporaries, who were Mary Ellen's contemporaries? Yes, um, I... I as I said, Mary's sister, Anne, was known to be mm-hmm. an artist. Mm-hmm. And really, there were any number of um, of accomplished amateur colonial lady painters. As I say, it was part of their um, their um, their retinue of, of accomplishments. Um, we have people like um, the wife of Robert Lowe. Who they, they lived at um, Bronte House in Sydney. Oh, right. And she, of course, was aristocratic. So she definitely had... And she was much more skilled artist than Mary Ellen. I would suggest, uh, and we have her artworks in the library's collections. Uh, and so, yes, I think because it was part of that um, ambition for women of this time. You know, women probably had very small spheres for ambition, but if you could add something like being artistic to that mm. retinue, then I think, yeah, that that's it was. Um, so we do have quite a number of examples in collections um, and if people wanted to to look for lady art for you know colonial lady painters I'm sure they'd be able to find lots of examples in public collections fantastic well Margot it's been terrific talking to you as always to understand more about the history and context of this iconic image thank you everyone for being with us today on the portrait detective podcast And thank you to the State Library of New South Wales and Create New South Wales for their continued support of this project. I'm Cassie Gilmartin. And I'm Margot Riley. For more on the image we've discussed today or to learn about other portrait detective images I've researched, visit www.portraitdetective.com.au. And of course, join us on our next episode as we discover more iconic images from the State Library of New South Wales collections. (music) 